Welcome to Have You Heard? An IDF Podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. People living with PI are the zebras of the medical world, and the IDF community is one big zebra herd. In today's Skid Compass episode, we will be talking with two research specialists from the Primary Immune Deficiency Treatment Consortium, or PIDTC, to discuss a collaborative study on assessing neurodevelopmental outcomes in Skid patients. This session was originally presented as a Skid Compass Lunch and Learn. All right, let's get started. Hello everyone and welcome to the Immune Deficiency Foundation's Skid Compass Lunch and Learn. Today's program will explore the PIDTC study on neurodevelopmental outcomes following treatment for severe combined immunodeficiency or Skid. My name is Emma Martins. I'm the program manager of community relations at the Immune Deficiency Foundation. On behalf of all of us at IDF, I'd like to thank you for joining us this afternoon for this Lunch and Learn. We are excited to host this program for the IDF community. Many of you tuning in today are doing so because you are an individual, parent, caregiver, or friend to someone with severe combined immunodeficiency, or SCID. SCID Compass, an educational program of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, is designed to guide parents of infants diagnosed with SCID, people living with SCID, and the medical community through the journey of learning about this rare, life-threatening medical disorder and find support to navigate the health challenges along the way. Compass is supported by a grant through the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, which is an agency of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Compass was developed through a partnership between the Immune Deficiency Foundation, RTI International, and the Association of Public Health Laboratories with support from Expecting Health and the Skid Angels for Life Foundation. I would now like to welcome our guests for today. Dr. Det Brum is a clinical neuropsychologist with specialization in the evaluation of children and adults. Dr. Brum is the chief neuropsychologist for the PIDTC study, Neurodevelopmental Outcomes Following Treatment for Severe Combined Immune Deficiency. Sharon Kidd is a trained epidemiologist and has worked in pediatric and perinatal research for over 25 years. Sharon completed her dissertation in autism research and oversaw a consortium that engaged in research on children with fragile X syndrome. Sharon is currently the senior program manager at the PIDTC. Welcome Dr. Brum and Sharon. Thank you, Emma. So thank you to the IDF for having us to speak today as part of their Compass series, uh, Lunch and Learn. Um, This topic of neurodevelopmental outcomes is an important one that's of great interest to families and patients. Uh, Once they've gotten through that hairy beginnings of getting through treatment uh, for uh, SCID, we now want to look further at their health and well-being as they enter childhood and into adulthood. So this project is going to give us a very good start into looking at those features. Okay, so since the first successful uh, HSCT, which stands for hematopoietic stem cell transplant for SCID in 1968, HSCT has been the treatment choice for SCID. And now uh, gene therapy is becoming more common for certain genotypes 
But although HSPT can be curative, long-term complications may occur. You can't overestimate the value of HSPT, but life-saving technique that has made potentially lethal disorder now have approximately 93% survival rate. So it's been extremely important and continues to be important. Um, some of the things that we're interested in besides survival, we are interested in overall survival and that this comes with long-term free uh, of, from events such as infection, chronic and acute morbidity, uh, also giving us free of second transplants uh, and organ damage. So we're looking at clinical outcomes in the PIDTC, and we're also looking at quality of life. We want to look at the ability for parents to work and make a second income uh, and for their own pleasure and uh, satisfaction for child to be involved in extracurricular activities, sports, arts, and so forth, free play that they can play with others, and future educational and career goals. What's down the road for people with uh, SCID who lived uh, past this early childhood phase? So these are the things that we're looking at uh, primarily in studies, and now we're taking our next steps to look at neurodevelopmental outcomes in much greater depth and breadth than has been done before. So some of the features that we're interested in are cognitive development, learning, uh, executive function, planning and organizational skills that are important for school, behaviors that allow them to participate in, in different groups and activities, uh, can also include uh, depression, anxiety, and features that might make um, it difficult for them to function in different settings, verbal and motor skills for communication, attention and focus, again, for school and for other activities. Uh, previous studies have been inconsistent uh, due to small and heterogeneous patient groups. Uh, these have included combining malignant and non-malignant disease that could be lumping the skin patients, other PID, and cancers, leukemias, and so forth. Uh, patients with uh, different conditioning regimens. Uh, conditioning regimens help to make room in the bone marrow for these new cells to grow. Uh, sometimes there hasn't been any conditioning. Sometimes there have been more harsh conditioning. Stem cell sources, the donors that have contributed the uh, stem cells can be relative donors, donors that are relative, can be unmatched donors, and then the chemotherapy, the medications that are used to destroy some of the cells to make that room. Uh, and this has been in the early days, uh, even radiation. So I want to concentrate a bit more on the review of the literature. As an epidemiologist, of course, this is my bread and butter. So first off, this slide is going to be on all SCID. Study populations included uh, different uh, disorders uh, aside from SCID. Sometimes include a small number of ADA or larger number of ADA. Um, and some exclusion criteria didn't apply to the other studies. We have the number of subjects being quite different and very small numbers by and large. We have the largest study here um, with the ages of evaluation would be also different. I restricted this slide to those studies that had at least three-year-olds 
uh, rather than uh, children that were younger. I also uh, kept this to those that had uh, a bone marrow transplant so that there would be some homogeneity that we could apply here. Uh, they did use a variety of different tests for, even for IQ, the Stanford Binet, the WISC, Bailey. So we have different tests going across here and other measures that were different, the strengths and difficulties questionnaires, commonly used in the United Kingdom, not so much here. Uh, and some adaptive behavior and attention deficit types of measures. Uh, I did include all those covariates we talked about on the earlier slide. Suffice to say that none of the results were by those kinds of groupings. Um, they uh, were really descriptive results by and large total. For the study that had the largest number of 105, we were able to see that their results were compared by norms in the population. So they did find some mean uh, full-scale IQ scores that were significantly below normal for SCIDs compared to the norms. And the ADA SCID that they had in their group was also significantly below the SCID group. Uh, the Connors was significantly higher than the norm. And then the adaptive skills were significantly lower than the norm. And then the other study I just want to concentrate on because they have an internal comparison group, which is unusual. Um, they also had a range that's actually very similar to the one that we have. They used the following measures and they found that the IQ scores were not significantly different. Now they excluded ADA, which may account for why there was not a difference. The uh, SDQ was better for the controls and the executive function scores were not significantly different. So they were finding right here uh, conflicting results on cognitive scores, and then we don't really have a full test battery to look at. And then this slide on ADA skin and ADA deficient patients, this is really a very different group of patients. Um, what we have in this group is because of the enzyme and that particular disorder, they are more likely to have cognitive deficits. Uh, sometimes consanguinity can play a role as well. And the numbers for these studies, except for the last row, are fairly small. Um, this is one that actually did have uh, matching, which is important when you have very small numbers like this. But nonetheless, you can't divide these uh, children up into different groups. So I just want to, again, feature some of the issues with this particular group. We had several studies that I believe would have been perhaps clinical impression for global developmental delay and what they described as ADHD in the paper. Uh, there was no test battery that was described at all. And uh, in these, there's quite a variety of different treatments. So we're not seeing these results related to the treatment type. We can't disengage the groups because of the small n, and the results are definitely in poor direction of poor outcomes, but in certain magnitude uh, because we have such a diversity and small numbers. So nothing can really be uh, conclusive here. So we just discussed about previous 
studies have identified potential risk factors for neurodevelopmental abnormalities in transplanted skin patients. Some of the disease-specific characteristics haven't been taken into account. Uh, we talked about ADA-SCID, but there's also a variety of other genotypes that may be quite different. For example, cartilage hair hypoplasia. Some um, age at transplantation can be significant. We have the age at evaluation in those studies. Often we didn't really have the age at transplantation. We want to know the, the difference between those two. Pre-existing infections, uh, cytomegalovirus can cause the uh, central nervous system abnormalities. And we don't know anything about the infections that these children have. And then the overall effects of treatment related to the type of transplant, the conditioning regimen, even areas such as the length of stay in the hospital, uh, graft versus host disease, and other outcomes. And then finally, uh, SCS is a potent predictor of both health and social and neurodevelopmental outcomes in general. It's likely to be the case also um, with disorders like SCID. The clinical features that are already collected in our robust natural history study of SCID will provide the data for this uh, because we're building on the protocols that have already uh, collected data on, on skid patients. We're able to concentrate for our study uh, simply on the neurodevelopmental test battery. So it's been very valuable to have a history of the PIDTC, both retrospective and prospective data to encompass treatment and outcomes over time. So I want to tell you a little bit about the genesis of neurodevelopmental data collection in the PIDPC and telling you a little bit about our protocols. Uh, our first protocols were 6901 and 6902, 6901 being a prospective arm of the study. They're both natural history, which means they're observational studies. There are no interventions that are done here. We're looking at uh, data collection over time on their clinical features and other um, as they advanced uh, through their lifespan. Uh, 6902 allowed us to go well back in time to 1985, I believe, to get um, some of the history back at that uh, time point, which gives us more rich information about conditioning regimens, for example. And within this data set, um, we also have the chance to see what was done, actually done in our protocols for neurodevelopment. So um, uh, my thanks to Heshel Isa and the late effects group at PIDC that are looking at late effects findings. Uh, they were able to use this 6902 data set uh, because these people will be much older. Skid is often a disease of very young children, and we don't have uh, the ability to look at them at ages six and beyond unless we're able to go back to some of the older patients. So in this group, we really just had a series of questions that um, turned out to be fairly limited. One of the examples of this was that we only had questions that were non-standardized except for the seizures question here. The seizures were actually asked specifically. Otherwise, these are mostly would be uh, clinical impression. Uh, this is achieved from the clinical research coordinator going to the electronic medical record to find this information. They may have had testing done to determine uh, developmental delay, but we didn't have the field to collect uh, the breadth that we wanted to collect. 
But even within that, though, we have uh, quite a few uh, features that would be encompassed in the kind of test battery that we're doing now for global delay. I will be able to um, exclude uh, children who have seizures. We have developmental delay, motor listed here, and behavior. And when you add those up, this uh, becomes about 11% of this group. Some of these things are likely to have happened um, at birth, such as cerebral palsy. So I'm just trying to limit it to what we probably will see in the future. And because these are non-standardized, that makes this very different from what we're doing both in our next set of protocols, which I'm going to talk about now. Uh, in the 6907 SCID protocol, we're able to um, look at changes. It's our current protocol. We're on boarding sites right now for this. This will be uh, all prospective uh, patients that haven't been transplanted to date. We will roll over patients from our 6901 and 2 protocols to be in the 6907, and we're also going to include anybody that might have been missed along the way that's already had a transplant. So it's an all-encompassing protocol, and we hope to enhance our numbers through that as well. So what are we asking now at this point? Um, again, keeping in mind that as a very robust clinical data collection, um, there are a lot more fields and data that's going to be collected in this particular protocol than there were in the legacy protocols of 6901 and 2. So we're trying to edge our area of interest in here as much as we could. Um, these are the questions that uh, resulted and will be in the case report forms as we go forward. So the first is, did the patient undergo neurocognitive testing? We'll be able to get the date of that. That'll give us uh, an idea of the age of evaluation and how it relates to the age of transplant as well, the type of testing that was done, and whether their uh, outcomes were normal and any other diagnosis that were given. Now, given this is from, again, electronic medical record, we may not have full information, but it gives us enough that we may even be able to go back and find out more information about the patients that did have abnormalities. Did the patient exhibit hyperactivity? We're using the CTCA e-scoring system to get maximum symptom scores at a given visit. These questions are going to be given at the annual visit, so every year as you go forward in time. And for hyperactivity, we'll be able to know whether the condition resolved during that visit or at the next visit. Was the patient on and off medication? Is the patient at appropriate age for grade? Uh, are they able to participate in the uh, appropriate grade uh, for their age, how far behind are they if they are behind? Uh, did the patient have a learning disability requiring special ed services? Did they have any physical or occupational therapy suggesting motor skills problems? And any requirement for speech therapy, which would indicate that they may have verbal, oral, and motor skills? Did the patient have a psychiatric disorder? We'll be using the maximum symptom score during the period and whether conditions resolve in patient off medication. The psychiatric disorder question, though, does group all psychiatric disorders together. Um, so, again, we may have to go back where we wanted to find out uh, differences in terms of depression, anxiety, um, as opposed to some of the more severe that are included in there, like bipolar disorder. 
Okay, and now we get to the part where it's our current study of neurodevelopmental outcomes. Uh, this is coming in between the collection, the earlier collection, and this is the clinical data that we will be using and linking to our study. And it comes at a, a very unique time point for us, and that will all, it'll be a baseline for the 6907 SCID protocol. So we'll have more detailed information at baseline and be able to follow the same kids forward in time with the annual visit and that battery of uh, questions that we just saw before. Okay, so I'm going to hand it off to Verdette now, and I'll forward the slides for her. We hope you'll remember to take advantage of all of the resources Skid Compass has to offer. This includes our brand new Skid and Family Planning Worksheet, which is designed to help parents think through the different family planning options and special considerations after having a child with Skid. We also have a parent fact sheet that shares crucial and concise information for parents after receiving an abnormal newborn screening result for Skid. To access either of these worksheets, please go to www.skidcompass.org slash parent-publications. Okay, thank you, Sharon. Uh, it's a great pleasure to um, be with you today at IDF's Lunch and Learn with uh, Sharon and myself. Um, so, in the context of that really excellent history that Sharon has just provided us on the uh, PIDTC studies, um, I wanted to just start by talking a little bit about why it's important that we're able to do this uh, neurodevelopmental study now at this point in time. So it's been over 10 years since the last formal evaluation of outcome of uh, transplanted uh, skid patients. And um, there have been a lot of uh, advances made in transplantation, um, really importantly, including the introduction of newborn screening. There have also been significant advances in standardized neurocognitive assessment. Um, the Assessment tools that we're using are a really important part of this study. They're all standardized. And importantly also uh, is the availability of neuropsychologists at uh, PIDTC sites. Um, neuropsychologists are subspecialists trained in evaluation of uh, children. They're neurocognitive, neuropsychological uh, functioning. So this is a really really important that we're able to conduct this study with uh, their participation. And um, neurodevelopmental outcome has been the focus of interest for many years as Sharon's lit review has given us a really um, excellent overview and is now made possible. And we're so grateful with the funding from um, the IDF. So uh, let's talk a little bit about what the specific aims are of the neurodevelopmental um, outcome study. Uh, the principal aim is to evaluate the neurodevelopmental differences among patients diagnosed with SCID by newborn screening versus those that were diagnosed following infection 
or via family history of primary immune deficiency. So these are children that are uh, going to be diagnosed um, earlier via newborn screening. And we'll talk in a moment about some of the, uh, why that's important. The secondary aims are to evaluate the effects of chemotherapy conditioning on neurodevelopmental outcome. Uh, as Sharon illustrated in the, her literature review, there are significant differences in conditioning regimens, and we want to be able to gain more information on how that impacts outcome in the developing brain. Uh, another aim is to analyze for possible correlation between neurodevelopmental outcome and different skid genotypes, uh, such as ADA or um, you know, uh, different genotypes which find different expression and have different impacts on the developing brain in, in young people. And um, also to assess the quality of life of patients and family members following definitive therapy. So the neurodevelopmental outcome study is a cross-sectional uh, study. It involves uh, evaluation of patients treated between 2005 and 2015. We will be using the rich uh, collection of data that was, has been um, pulled together from previous uh, PIDTC protocols, as Sharon illustrated from 6901, 6902, and to identify specific areas of neurodevelopmental deficits in individual patients. We want to assess the impact of clinical and treatment variables. Um, and once again, I'm just gonna list those because it's, this is a really important part of the study to look at the, the, the interaction between outcome and these treatment variables, including skid genotype, newborn screening, agent transplantation, conditioning regimen, and grass versus host disease. And the study will uh, provide neurodevelopmental test results to uh, principal investigators and treatment, their treatment teams uh, at PIDTC sites, and patients and families will be provided uh, information, including potential recommendations for further evaluation that may come about from the neurodevelopmental screening that they will undergo. And this might include recommendation for more comprehensive neuropsychological evaluation, or maybe the results suggest that educational testing or intervention would be beneficial for the child. It might be possible that there's um, evidence of depression or anxiety then, and uh, behavioral health intervention or evaluation may be appropriate. So I wanna talk a little bit about the methods and procedures that we're going to be using in um, the outcome, neurodevelopmental outcome study. So skid patients ages six through 16 will be uh, enrolled who were transplanted between 2005 and 2015 on protocol 6901 or 6902. All patients in this age range will be assessed with the same neurodevelopmental instruments. And I just wanna mention here the importance of the fact that all of the measures that we're using are standardized. In other words, the, the results from individual patients will be compared to uh, normative data of 
um, the performance of other children or adolescents in their age range. The, we hope to enroll approximately 120 patients and we've enrolled uh, just over 10 patients to date. The neurodevelopmental screening evaluations will be conducted by neuropsychologists at uh, PIDTC centers and standardized neurodevelopmental testing and self-report measures will be completed by individual patients. Um, the battery of tests that children will participate in is approximately three hours. They will be uh, evaluated one-on-one -on -one with the site neuropsychologist. And we're making an effort to really try and incorporate the neurodevelopmental uh, visit with a standard clinical visit, a regular clinical visit, so that it's easier for families in that regard. Um, standardized measures of the patient's social, emotional, and adaptive function, as well as quality of life will com be completed by their um, parents or caregivers. And this, um, this uh, slide uh, gives you a little bit of an idea of the type of testing that we'll be doing. The standard neurodevelopmental tests are organized by cognitive domain. Uh, patients will be receiving overall intellectual functioning um, measure, the Wexler Intelligence Scale for Children. Uh, measures of attention and executive function uh, will include the Dallas Kaplan Executive Function System. Learning and memory is another important domain that we will be assessing uh, via the California Verbal Learning Test for Children. Visual, spatial, and visual construction skills. That's a child's ability to problem solve and work with visual information and to use um, their visual motor skills, such as drawing or writing. Uh, this will be assessed using the Beery Visual Motor Integration Test. And we have a, a measure of academic achievement included in the battery, the wide range achievement test of reading. And an important um, domain is the social emotional behavioral adjustment of our patients. So um, that will be assessed via the behavior rating inventory of executive function. The cell, it's a self-report measure uh, for children that are um, over 11 years. So the, the, the test battery is organized uh, according to uh, developmentally appropriate age range. So every, all the um, patients will be getting measures of these do, uh, domains of function. Some of the tests uh, will be different based on age. And um, they will also be completing um, a self-report measure of depression and anxiety. Um, parents and caregivers' perceptions of their uh, child is a really important additional tool to assess neurodevelopmental function. So these are... Um, these four measures will be completed by parents or caregivers, either at the time of the uh, visit, or um, uh, we also have the capability of uh, doing some of these measures online and include a measure of uh, executive function. This also uh, gives uh, the important information regarding the child's ability to regulate their cognitive or their thinking skills and their um, emotional um, reactions, their emotional regulation. The behavior assessment system for children is a, is a very thorough uh, rating scale that parents 
will complete of behavior and emotional status and a measure of adaptive functioning, meaning daily living skills, communication skills, social skills, and um, of course, the pediatric quality of life inventory. Some of the limitations that um, we want to note are the availability of neuropsychologists and the feasibility of testing patients across PIDTC sites. So there are uh, the, the process of conducting neurodevelopmental uh, testing requires a, a team of not only our senior research coordinator in Sharon, myself, but also all of the individuals at the sites to coordinate this effort. There's the also an additional limitation is the complexity of evaluating bilingual, bicultural patients. We're really making an effort to be as inclusive as possible um, to really enable as much participation by uh, patients as possible. So um, this just is an additional, um, adds an additional layer of complexity with regard to the uh, testing procedures. A really important uh, consideration for our study is the impact of COVID-19, not only on enrollment and the evaluation process, but the increase in social, emotional, and academic issues related to COVID-19 uh, in this cohort. And lastly here, many children are transplanted close to birth. So um, in the future, it's gonna be important to look at ways in which to assess uh, development closer to the time of transplantation earlier in earlier age groups. So in conclusion, um, this is a rare opportunity um, that we're very excited about to be able to move toward a better understanding of the cognitive and behavioral outcomes in transplanted uh, SCID patients in the context of the multiple factors that we've talked about today, including um, conditioning, newborn screening, timing of diagnosis, that all, that all of which influence outcome. And we hope that this work is going to help us move forward to help guide um, transplantation treatment approaches, to looking at these factors and their impact on outcome, developmental outcome. We hope that uh, the data from this study will help increase awareness of risk factors and neurodevelopmental dysfunction, if any, in skid patients post-transplantation. And a really important goal of all of the individuals working on this study is to work toward providing optimal support to patients post-transplant. And this might uh, take the form of guiding specific referrals, for example, for educational testing or intervention, more in-depth neuropsychological evaluation, psychiatric um, evaluation. Uh, for example, if there's a concern regarding depression or anxiety or attentional problems or other behavioral health intervention, maybe family supportive therapy or individual uh, talk therapy or maybe group therapy. And lastly, this is a study plan that we hope uh, may be applied to mm -hmm. primary immune deficiencies uh, down the line. So I'm coming back in just for the last two slides. Um, one of the subjects I wanted to discuss is future ideas for neurodevelopmental outcomes research. And this also comes from Verdet's recent 
uh, discussion about we can use this as a prototype for other PIDT patients. So we have uh, chronic granulomatous disease, we've got wiscott alger syndrome and CURD that we're collecting data on through the PIDTC protocols. Uh, we now have a lot of experience in carrying this out for SCID. Um, I'm hoping that we can do this in the future for these other groups. And for the SCID population um, itself, we now have a baseline and we can do these more advanced test batteries again in about five years when it may be the next best time to really see changes. And another idea, uh, because the cost of this is, is relatively expensive um, in terms of providing the time and expertise of a neuropsychologist in a three-hour test battery, is that one can do something along the lines of using a one-time only uh, limited period uh, in the PIDTC protocols for patient and parent report neurodevelopmental form. So you might add an online entry for one year period whenever patients drop in for their clinical visits and use some of these uh, patient and parent report forms to get more information about neurodevelopmental outcomes, behaviors, and cognitive development. So th those are just some ideas for future research. And then finally, with our acknowledgments, uh, we want to acknowledge Drs. Mort Cowan and Ami Shaw that were in instrumental for getting the funding for the study and to put together the study idea and the study design. Uh, we have staff such as uh, Lauren Sanchez at uh, UCSF that has been our key to consenting and enrolling our patients, Brenda Franklin with getting our subawards going, and Allison Yip to do all things uh, filling in the gaps around our work. The PIDTC, our principal investigators, Drs. Puck, Dvorak, and Haddad. Uh, that are providing the base for this study in terms of clinical data and our funding for ourselves. Uh, and then the money ultimately coming from the Immune Deficiency Foundation, from Melissa Creamer, Sarah Rose, and Emma Mertens, and their help in getting this going, and the Health Resources Services Administration, or HRSA, for the um, award that was given to IDF. And then finally, to the 6912 patients and their families that are giving their time to help us achieve the goals of the study. None of this research can be done without the help of patients and their families, and we're quite indebted to um, this group. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Sharon and Dr. Brum, for sharing your wealth of knowledge with IDF and the SCID communities. Um, thank you for everyone who joined us for this program, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. The Skid Compass series is supported by a grant through the Health Resources and Service Administration, or HRSA, an agency of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You can watch the full Skid Compass Lunch and Learn on our YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash IDF videos. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. For more information on SCID, visit www.skidcompass.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at idf at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.